So today I'd like to explore uh, two of the qualities that we spoke of last night, the, the paramis, the perfections. Um, and I'd like to start actually in the middle of this list, this list that, uh, of ten qualities that I mentioned last night, and I'll just rename them now. Um, <laughs> they are um, generosity, virtue, renunciation, wisdom, energy, patience, truthfulness, determination, loving-kindness, and equanimity. And I thought I'd start actually in the middle with wisdom and energy. Partly because in the Buddha's own framing of the Eightfold Path, the uh, wisdom teachings come first. So wisdom, wise understanding, and wise intention are the first two factors of the Eightfold Path. And so to some extent the Buddha says that the path that he describes begins from an understanding of wisdom. And so that's why I'm choosing to start tonight, or this afternoon, with wisdom. And the pairing of these two, the wisdom and energy, um, energy is a very important quality in our uh, meditation practice. We apply energy to, uh, to our mindfulness, to our, to our practice, to just how we are with our experience. And the, the pairing of these two, wisdom and energy, in this paramis list, they're right next to each other in the paramis list. And this, I think, is an important piece of information for us to, to, to recognize, to notice. That with the pairing of wisdom and energy, the Buddha is saying that it's important to consider how you apply your energy. That it's not just... Uh, any old energy is useful. It's a certain kind of energy, an energy with a certain direction to it. So essentially, the way we use our energy is guided by uh, what we're trying to do with that energy. And the Buddha suggests that um, there's some specific ways of engaging, wise ways of engaging, that support the unfolding of our practice, that support how we use our energy in practice. So the Buddha, in his uh, teaching on wisdom, his the teaching of wise understanding, points to ways that we can live skillfully in our lives, happily in our lives. It's not just a matter of being skillful, but it it also, he points to this as being a kind of, the wisdom that he's pointing to as being the kind of ground of where true happiness can come from. So he's pointing to a, a new view, a new way of understanding our lives. We all have views. We all have frameworks that we live our lives through. And the Buddha in um, 
it's said at least that the Buddha, in, after his enlightenment, looked out at the world and said that he saw that people were doing things trying to be happy, trying to find happiness, but they actually were doing the very things that were leading them into their struggles. That, that they were doing the very things that got in the way of their happiness. And so if we think about what is our usual view, what's our usual way of approaching happiness, I think it comes down to two basic pieces, and one is that of having things, and another is that of being seen in a certain way by people. So the Buddha realized that this usual strategy for happiness is essentially inherently flawed. It's inherently tied up with the way that we struggle, that we suffer, that we experience dissatisfaction, unease, stress. And largely because the ways that we're going about looking for happiness are relying on things outside of us. They're relying on external conditions, external opinions of other people to um, that's where we're looking for our happiness is outside of ourselves. And so he saw that this is inherently tied up with this um, problem that this is the problem that he was looking to solve when he went on his own quest. Why is it that we experience this stress, this dissatisfaction, this unease, this suffering? The term, poly term for this, most of you know, is dukkha. So he pointed us to a reorientation of our view, one that comes from deeply understanding this dukkha where this dukkha arises from. So the wisdom of the Buddha, his teachings, his wisdom teachings, are intimately connected with this understanding of suffering, this understanding of why we suffer, feel unease, dissatisfaction, stress. So it's not a big surprise, actually, when we come to look at his main teachings, his main wisdom teachings, that they're framed in terms of dukkha. They're framed in terms of stress, dissatisfaction, suffering. There's a couple of main uh, definitions of wisdom in in the Buddhist teachings, and I'm going to talk about two of those in particular today, just briefly. One of them is that one framework or definition of wisdom is that when we uh, understand what is skillful with respect to leading us away from dukkha, leading us away from suffering, and understand what is unskillful, what is what what is what are the things that lead us toward this suffering that this is this is some wisdom this is wisdom that we 
uh, gain as we begin to explore our experience in terms of this framework of suffering. We begin to understand what helps us let go of it, what helps us move away from it, and what is it that gets in our way? What, it, what is it that's unskillful? What is it that leads us right into suffering? So this is uh, a broad set of teachings. It encompasses the ethical, ethical conduct. Um, it's connected to the precepts that we talked about last night. That those precepts that we talked about last night are, are um, understood to be skillful conduct. That this is helpful for us to lead us away from suffering. It's not simply uh, thought of as something we should do or something that's good to do for other people. It's good for us. It helps to lead us towards happiness to connect with these teachings of the precepts, of this ethical conduct. The other side of this understanding is that we begin to see that there are certain qualities of mind that tend to lead us towards suffering and other qualities of mind that tend to lead us towards happiness. So that's, that's one of the frameworks that the Buddha offers, is beginning to understand what's skillful and what's unskillful with respect to finding our way, our path, out of this mire of dukkha. The other, uh, another of the main ways that the wisdom, wisdom is understood in the Buddhist teachings is in terms of the Four Noble Truths. And again, it's no surprise they're framed in terms of suffering. The truth of suffering, the truth of the cause of suffering, the truth of cessation of suffering, and the truth of the path leading to the cessation of suffering. So if we think about it, these four truths are very intimately connected with that first teaching on what's skillful and and, uh, helps us to move away from suffering and what is unskillful, what keeps us locked into the cycle of suffering. So the first two noble truths address what's unskillful. There's suffering and there's a cause of suffering. This is actually really good news that there's a cause of suffering and that it it actually, the Buddha points to it being in our own minds that this suffering is caused. It's not out there. It's not in the world that we um, experience suffering. We react to things in the world. The reactivity is the cause of our suffering. So that this reactivity, we often think about it as being something that is out of our control. It's like, well, when that happens, of course I react. Why wouldn't I react? But we can begin to see that this reactivity is optional. And this is a big piece of understanding the cause of suffering. So this begins, this is a a refinement in a sense and, and this understanding of what is unskillful. And on the other side, Uh, What is skillful, um, the Buddha lays out the Eightfold Path. Wise understanding, wise view, wise wise intention, wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood, wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration. These being the most skillful actions we can take to lead us towards freedom from suffering. 
So as I mentioned at the beginning of the talk, the, the Buddha talked about wise view, wise intention as being the beginning of the Eightfold Path. That they're where we start. And so it's interesting to think about wisdom being where we begin. And this points to an understanding about wisdom, that there are different layers of wisdom, different levels of wisdom, perhaps we could say. That the, um, the most basic form of wisdom is what we hear, what we read, what we learn. We take in information. And so this talk is a form of, of this kind of wisdom that I'm offering some of what the Buddha taught. And so we, we, we take in the information then the next level down is that we begin to reflect on it. We begin to contemplate, does this make sense to me? Do I understand it? Perhaps ask some questions. So we begin to kind of chew it over in our minds, this wisdom that has come in. If we um, resonate with this wisdom, if we resonate with the teachings, we begin to engage we begin to act. And this is where energy comes in. So this is how wisdom and energy are intimately connected. That once we have taken in some information, the teachings of the Buddha aren't simply about learning, memorizing, and regurgitating information. His teachings are very practical. All of his teachings come with practices. So the, uh, the, the, the Four Noble Truths, for example, they're not just simply statements of truths to be believed. There is suffering, there is a cause of suffering, there is a, a cessation of suffering, and there's a path leading to the cessation of suffering. Each of those truths comes with an action that's associated with it. The truth of suffering, the Buddha said, should be understood. The truth of the cause of suffering should be let go of. The truth of the cessation of suffering should be realized and the truth of the path leading to the cessation of suffering should be cultivated. And so these wisdom that the Buddha is offering is intimately connected with engagement. And so there's not so much of a distinction actually in a way between wisdom and, and energy. That there, there is a distinction, but, but they're intimately connected in the Buddha's teachings. And his his wisdom teachings are tied up with how to engage. So we start to engage, and through that engagement, we actually begin to understand for ourselves how these um, teachings, and, and just even just the simple teaching about skillful conduct, work with the precepts, understanding the, uh, what's skillful and what's unskillful, as we begin to explore that, being attentive in our own experience to what are the consequences of acting on unskillful mind states. We see that suffering is the result. So we begin to, to understand for ourselves, not just through learning and thinking about, but through direct experience how these truths, how this wisdom works. So it is through the engagement, through energy, 
that we begin to understand the wisdom. And the the paramis, the the teaching of this list of paramis, it's they're ordered in a particular way, um, and it's said that the perfection of each one, that each one is perfected by the next one. And so this is the case that wisdom is perfected by engagement, by effort, by energy. So we start with just the understanding and we begin to engage, to act, and then we have a deeper kind of understanding. The, the, the wisdom becomes more ours. So I want to talk just a little bit more about this um, teaching, the wisdom teaching around understanding what's skillful and unskillful. Because this is a really a big part of the ground on which energy is based. That when we understand what's skillful and unskillful, our energy is applied towards cultivating what's skillful, letting go of what's unskillful. So this definition of what's skillful and unskillful is defined in terms of dukkha, in terms of suffering. It's not what's skillful and unskillful with respect to driving a car. It's what's skillful and unskillful with respect to freeing our minds from suffering. So it's defined right in terms of dukkha. And there, uh, the understanding, basically, the kind of core understanding around what's skillful and unskillful has to do with the qualities that are present in our mind. That when we act out of unskillful qualities of mind, we act out of the, the most kind of concise definition I know of, of unskillful qualities of mind are those that are based in greed, aversion, and delusion. And when we act out of those qualities, when our, um, those qualities are present in our mind and we are motivated into action because of them, then we tend to suffer. So these unskillful qualities of mind that are based in greed, aversion, delusion, these are qualities of mind that I think you'll recognize as being not so helpful. They're anger, frustration, boredom, annoyance, greed, um, pride. Even things like excitement have an edge to them. Um, Disconnection. So there, those, these are the kind of states that they're, they're not only, they not only lead us to, to suffering, but much of the time they're actually suffering in and of themselves. When we recognize, begin to turn our attention to pay attention to these qualities of anger, for instance, we begin to see, oh, this doesn't feel very good. Right in and of itself, it doesn't feel very good. then skillful qualities of mind, wholesome qualities of mind, are those that lead us away from suffering. And those are states of mind based in non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion. These are qualities such as the paramis, generosity, virtue, wisdom, truthfulness, kindness, equanimity, compassion. So acting from these qualities tends to take us in the direction of happiness. 
So energy, the quality of energy, the pyramid of energy, is the, uh, in terms of it being in this list, it is this energy that is imbued with wisdom, imbued with this understanding of what is skillful and unskillful. It's energy directed towards cultivating the wholesome, cultivating the skillful, and letting go of the unskillful. Energy itself, if we just think about the quality of energy itself, and in the, 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 um, the Buddhist texts, the, um, the teachings of the Buddha and the commentaries to the Buddha, energy itself is understood to be a neutral quality. It can skew towards the wholesome or the unwholesome depending on what states of mind are accompanying it. And so if energy is accompanied by aversion, it's heading us towards suffering. If energy is accompanied by compassion, kindness, balance of mind, equanimity, it tends to head us towards freedom from suffering. So energy itself is neutral, and it is accompanied by other, uh, other factors that tend to give its, its direction. So wisdom is very important understanding the, the uh, how are we using our energy. So that's why I began this talk with the discussion of wisdom. So as a parami, um, we cultivate wholesome qualities with energy. We cultivate wholesome qualities. We let go of unwholesome qualities. We engage with the Four Noble Truths through understanding suffering, letting go of the cause of suffering, cultivating the path to the end of suffering, and realizing how suffering ends. So there are several um, qualities, factors, that support the cultivation of appropriate energy or wise energy. Wisdom being the first, I think, that having that grounding in some kind of understanding begins to motivate us. You know, as we, as we hear the teachings, especially hearing that they have this practical edge to them, you know, it's like, oh, you know, maybe if I try this, maybe this will help. I certainly had that kind of uh, sense when I first heard these teachings. It's like I didn't quite understand them, but it's like, well, I haven't found anything else that works. Maybe I should try this. So that it was a, a beginning of directing the energy towards something new, something different. So wisdom gives us a, a kind of a, a burst towards energy. Confidence, if we have a sense that we can engage with the teachings engage with the practices, that gives us um, some energy that, that can support this cultivation of appropriate energy. There's a quality um, that's translated spiritual urgency that um, also provides a boost to energy. And this is, this is phrased in the, in the Buddha's teachings, does somebody know a way or two out of suffering? Is, is how we, um, we, we, we have a sense of a search, essentially. So this gives us some impetus towards moving our energy in a direction that's skillful. 
investigation, interest, curiosity also can provide a sense of energy, can provide a... When we're interested in something, there's kind of a natural energy that arises. When we're curious, it's like, oh, what's that? You know, it's not like we have to try to be engaged with energy when we're curious. It comes naturally. And then there is effort as a support for energy. Actually choosing how to engage. So energy and effort are often... um, kind of woven together, almost as, as if they're the same thing. My understanding is that they're slightly different, but very interconnected. And so I'd like to talk a little bit about how energy and effort are related, but slightly different. So energy is um, kind of the quality of... Um, I guess we could say energy motivates effort. That when we have energy, we choose to engage in specific ways. And so effort, I think of having a a kind of a a personal or a a kind of an intentionality behind it. That there's choice around how we make effort. Energy can just be seen as a, as a quality or a, a sense of um, in aliveness almost. And so effort might be how we apply that sense of aliveness. So there's that um, relationship between them. And there's also a curious um, kind of two-way connection between them. Because we often think in our minds, that we have to have energy in order to make effort. And that's true, we need some amount of energy, we need to be alive in order to make effort. Um, And yet, making effort cultivates energy. Especially making effort in a skillful way cultivates the kind of energy that heads us in the direction towards freedom from suffering. So the, the, the Buddha actually described this factor of, of energy, the spiritual factor of energy, he said. The, the spiritual factor of energy that um, is supportive for our liberation. He said that is the energy that's a result of making wise effort. So wise effort creates this wholesome energy. As I said, the energy can be either, it can be associated with wholesome qualities or unwholesome qualities. So wise effort supports this wholesome energy. So we can explore what it means to make wise effort. And the Buddha had a description of this. There's four ways that he talked about wise effort. And it's no surprise that they're defined back again in terms of what is skillful and what is unskillful with respect to suffering. So the four kinds of wise effort. The effort to avoid or 
to support the non-arising, somehow how it's phrased, the effort towards the non-arising of unwholesome states that have not yet arisen. There's three negatives in that sentence. (laughs) It can be a little bit hard to parse that. But basically what this, I'll state all four of them and then I'll come back. So the effort toward the non-arising of the unwholesome states that have not arisen. The effort towards abandoning or letting go of unwholesome states that have arisen or that are present. The effort towards the arousing of wholesome states that have not yet arisen, and the effort toward the sustaining of wholesome states that have arisen. So the first, this one with three negatives in it, the effort toward the non-arising of unwholesome states that have not arisen. (laughs) This is basically, it sounds complicated, but it's basically learning, understanding, observing in our experience what it is that leads us into suffering and avoiding those causes so that we uh, kind of uh, avoid the arising of unwholesome states by avoiding the causes of those unwholesome states. So this, this term avoiding I like, the, I like actually the use of non-arising because avoiding sounds like we're doing something actively. Um, and non-arising, I think, encompasses a broader understanding of how this works. The effort towards the non-arising of unwholesome states that have not arisen. If it's the effort towards avoiding, we think we're, think we're doing something actively. And we can. I mean, suppose there's somebody that you know... Um, that every time you see that person, you find yourself getting angry. So one way to understand this teaching would be, well, just simply don't go there. <laughs> don't be with that person. You know, that would be one, that would be avoidance. We can avoid being with that person. And then we don't get subject to the, uh, the anger that arises when we're with them. So that's, you know, a kind of a simplistic way of looking at avoiding. A kind of a deeper way of looking at it might be to begin to understand, as I said earlier, that um, that our anger arises partly in dependence on what happens out in the world, but more in dependence on how we react to that. And so uh, if you are um, exploring this, you might be interested in observing yourself when you're with that person and see if you can begin to understand the deeper causes of that arising of anger. There is a part of it that is because you're in um, face-to-face with that person, but that's only part of it. The other part of it is internal. It's, it's in our own minds, our own hearts and our own minds. And so beginning to tr- understand the true causes of that anger arising means beginning to observe ourselves when we're in those situations. And so I think, you know, many of you um, have been practicing for a while, and even, even those of you who've only been practicing for a shorter time, perhaps you've begun to have a sense of the power of the practice. One of the things that does start to happen as we as we engage is that we start to see 
well, this thing that's happening right now, it's not bothering me as much as it used to. You know, this, this uh, situation, you know, I, you know, I know five years ago I would have been really angry if this had been the situation. But I'm not feeling that anger right now. So in that exploration, we begin to directly understand what it means to experience the non-arising of something. We know essentially through um, uh, seeing our own minds that had we not been practicing, had we not been working with our own hearts and minds, that we would have gone down that garden path of uh, anger. And we see that because of the practice, we're not going in that direction anymore, even though we're in the situation. So this, over time, we begin to uh, really appreciate this non-arising of unwholesome states. The second kind of right effort, the effort to abandon unwholesome states that have arisen. Now this is a lot of where our practice lies. We see, we, we notice things coming up. We notice anger that's come up. We notice frustration. We notice wanting. We notice boredom. We notice all of the variety of things that come up in our minds. And we turn our attention to them. One of the, um, again, this is, so abandoning, letting go, we sometimes think of it as being, okay, well, here's this unwholesome state of anger, frustration, irritation, uh, rage, what, whatever it is that's come up. We, we have the, we recognize it, and we think abandoning means somehow we have to, like, actively rip it out of ourselves and get rid of it. Well, that's actually just, bringing more aversion to the situation if we're, if we're um, you know, applying aversion to want to get rid of aversion. So the, um, that this abandoning can at times have an active sense, but I think more often it actually arises because we're willing to be mindful. We're willing to meet our difficult states of mind and rather than be driven by them, we, we're, get, we get curious about them. We just notice what's going on around them. We notice how they impact our bodies. We notice how they impact our thoughts. We notice the kinds of emotions that come up around them. And instead of um, being, um, instead of having a sense of, I've got to get rid of this, it's more like, what's this about? Huh, this is interesting. And when we engage with that kind of um, curiosity, it does something interesting in our minds. It seems to disengage us from the the momentum of that unwholesome energy and allows it to live its life, allows it to... It's already arisen, it's already there. And that disengagement, it's kind of like disengaging wheels of... um, um, gears of a car, you know, so that if you're driving a car, you're pushing on the accelerator and the, the gears are engaged and the, the, the gears are, are turning. And we can think of mindfulness as kind of disengaging the gears. It puts us into neutral. And the part of, a part of that analogy that I particularly resonate with is that when we disengage the gears with mindfulness, it doesn't mean that the thing stops immediately. 
And when we put our car into neutral, if we're going 100 miles an hour down a road, you know, that car is not going to stop right away. You put the car into neutral, but it will stop when we're no longer giving it that gas. It will eventually stop. So the practice of mindfulness essentially takes us to the place where we abandon our unwholesome states by disengaging the gears and allowing them to stop of their own accord in their time. So this, is, this requires patience. This requires commitment to coming back over and over again. And it also requires a little bit of wisdom from us in um, sometimes we do find that um, it's helpful to have something active, to have an active sense of letting go of unwhole states. If we're overwhelmed by an unwholesome state, if we find that trying to be mindful of something challenging for us just essentially like takes us down the black hole of that mind state and then we're like we lose our mindfulness completely it's probably not so helpful to try to be mindful of that thing and then we can uh, do something a little more active perhaps actively redirecting our attention to something neutral so if we are experiencing a kind of state of mind that's challenging for us and um, we know that if we turn our attention to it it's going to take us into that black hole Recognizing, okay, yep, I see you, and I'm going to put my attention elsewhere. So an active redirecting of the attention is a way of, it doesn't say stop. I mean, it's not, it's not a repression. It's not trying to stop that thing. It's just a redirecting of the attention so that we can stay present and not get sucked into that energy, that unwholesome energy. We can also actively... Um, uh, the Buddha actually suggests at times that replacing our thoughts around difficult uh, states, um, you know, if you're angry with somebody, um, choosing to uh, remind ourselves perhaps of some beautiful qualities that they have, actively replacing those uh, unwholesome thoughts. Well, they shouldn't have done that. They're a really bad person. Well, and they did this. And that was really nice that they did that. So we, we can actively uh, replace our thoughts. Again, I, I think in the practices that we're teaching here, I think mindfulness is our first uh, line of practice. And if we find that we can't be mindful of something difficult, then we can learn some skillful strategies for, uh, for letting go of that difficulty. Then we're on the other side now. The third kind of right effort is around cultivating wholesome states. Arouse wholesome states of mind that have not yet arisen. And this has two sides to it. We, um, we can actively refrain from unwholesome actions. This is where the precepts come in also. The actively refraining from unwholesome actions actually has a rebound effect on our mind that cultivates wholesome qualities of mind. So if we refrain from lying, we are actively cultivating truthfulness. If we refrain from harming, 
we're actively cultivating compassion. And so the precepts themselves in this avoiding of unwholesome action provides this beautiful support. So in this way we see in, in a way how the both sides of the right effort are connected by avoiding unwholesome states. We could also talk about the precepts in avoiding unwholesome states that have not arisen. But it does both. It helps us to avoid unwholesome states that are not arisen and it cultivates wholesome states. And we can, act, we can also cultivate wholesome qualities of mind directly. The practice of metta, of loving kindness, is a way of actively cultivating the quality of an open heart through a practice of inclining the mind in the direction of thinking thoughts of goodwill. Many practices for all the wholesome qualities we can create our own practices essentially. I mean some of, some of them have specific practices that are taught like metta and, and compassion. Loving kindness and compassion have some, some specific practices. Generosity we can cultivate through the act of giving. And I often like to encourage people to um, come up with your own creative ways to cultivate these qualities, ones that resonate for you. The fourth kind of right effort, the effort to sustain wholesome states that have arisen. You know, when I first started thinking about this, it's like, why would that take effort? You know, something beautiful has arisen, why does it take effort to sustain it? Partly it takes effort to sustain it because our minds have such a, a strong habit towards um, our hab- habitual tendencies, which are often based in greed, aversion, and delusion. So, um, you know, we're the, when wholesome states arise, they're arising in this kind of habitual field of uh, our tendencies towards frustration or anger or annoyance or whatever our, they're based in greed, aversion, and delusion. So um, when we notice a wholesome state arising, it's helpful to recognize it, you know, acknowledge it, appreciate it. Really, really helpful. I found this to be the most effective way to cultivate wholesome states, I mean, to, to, um, to sustain wholesome states, wholesome states that have arisen. Be aware of them. Be mindful of them. Appreciate them. Oh, this is mindfulness. This is curiosity. This is concentration. This is kindness. This is generosity. This is truthfulness. Actually acknowledging it. This is calm. It's interesting for myself. I, I had to laugh at myself on one retreat. I finally, after some weeks of really huffing and puffing. <laughs> okay, going to be just keep coming back, keep, keep coming back. There was a little bit more of a, a kind of a smooth sailing, that there was a little bit less uh, intentional effort needed for the mindfulness to, to sustain. And I found in that space that the mind got very calm and got very um, contented. And what I noticed the mind doing with that was, oh, calm. Oh, this must be, this is, this is the perfect time to pay attention to that pain in my back. So that I would, you know, agitate the mind essentially out of calm by trying to do something with that calm. I thought, oh, calm, this must be useful in some way. I'll try, I'll try doing something with it. And it 
what I chose to do with it tended to agitate the mind. So rather than just simply appreciating and recognizing, oh, calm is present. This is what calm is like. I chose to do something that agitated the mind. And when I finally recognized that, it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> I had to laugh at myself about that. So recognizing when these beautiful qualities arise. So the last piece I'll bring in um, just briefly is that it's also helpful to begin to recognize when our energy is out of balance. That we make effort and it produces some energy, but at times we get out of balance with our energy. Sometimes we're pushing too hard, we're trying too hard, being a little too forceful with our, our mindfulness. Or sometimes we're a little lax, we're a little lazy, just kind of drifting more or less mindful, as, Guy, as, as Joseph Goldstein says, that we're not really engaged. And so we fluctuate between these different, you know, from one side to another. So it's helpful to learn to recognize our own, the, our own ways that we get out of balance. Some of us tend to be more out of balance on the side of over-efforting. Some of us tend to be more out of balance on the side of under-efforting and learning how to engage with those. A a really uh, helpful tool for bringing balance back into mind is learning how to apply effort in a skillful way. And this this actually, I think this um, this is a big part of the art of our practice, that we learn how to be um, skillful in how we bring our effort to our experience. If we tend to be the, the, on the under-efforting side, then we probably need to make some concerted effort to remind ourselves, just be here, moment after moment. Just come back, just come back. Joseph teaches a beautiful teaching along these lines. Just make enough effort to be present for half a breath. And then do it again at the end of that half breath. And so it, that, that gives us kind of a, that actually, this, that teaching can balance both sides. It can balance us if we're over-efforters or under-efforters. If we're under-efforters, it keeps us coming back. Half a breath, okay, another. Half a breath, bring that energy in. Half a breath, half a breath. If we're over-efforters, we tend to, at least I tend to have a sense of, Okay, it's the beginning of the sitting. I'm going to be present for the whole 45 minutes. And I try to pick up that whole 45 minutes in the first moment of the sitting and be present. And it's like way too much energy in that first moment of the sitting. Whereas this teaching that Joseph offers is just enough effort to be present for half a breath. That's all the energy you need to make in that moment. Enough effort to stay present for half a second. A second. And then do it again, and again, and again. We can apply this in the walking. I found it really helpful at times, especially when my mind was really scattered, to pick something a step or two out on the path and say, can I be mindful until I reach that leaf? And then do it again. Again, this this can help balance us. This kind of small moments many times can help balance us on either side 
whether we tend to be under-efforters or over-efforters. This whole process takes patience. Patience. Because of the momentum of our difficult states of mind, the momentum of our greed or our aversion or delusion. And um, I think it's uh, beautiful, actually, that in this list of the paramis, patience follows energy, which means that patience perfects energy. So energy perfects wisdom. Patience perfects energy. That means that we need to be patient in applying our energy over and over, patient and persistent, over and over again. And I think this teaching on balancing energy begins to take us into that terrain of understanding what it means to patiently come back over and over again. So we'll um, talk about patience in a few days. We're not, gonna, we're not going through the paramis in, in, in sequence here on this, in these talks. Um, but I just kind of wanted to frame energy by its two uh, paramis wisdom and patience. And then I'll close with a quote from the Dalai Lama that I think some of you have probably heard before, but it's so beautiful. I think I never get tired of hearing it or reading it. No matter what is going on, never give up. Develop the heart. Too much energy in your country is spent developing the mind instead of the heart. Be compassionate, not just to your friends, but to everyone. Be compassionate, work for peace in your heart and in the world. Work for peace. And I say again, never give up. No matter what's going on around you, never give up. So let's sit in silence for just a moment. Just letting the words settle. No need to remember, try to remember anything. <laughs> 